Thursday, August 6th, 2020. I'm Tanya Harris, and welcome to TMI Daily, your daily roundup of everything people are talking about online since they aren't allowed to talk about it in person. This morning, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced a lawsuit to dissolve the National Rifle Association due to fraud and abuse. The NRA were quick to respond that if it weren't for fraud and abuse, why would we need a gun? Yesterday in his briefing, Donald Trump had a hard time explaining why he thought Republican-led states, Florida and Arizona, were okay for mail-in ballots, while Democratic-led Nevada wasn't. Clearly, reporters expecting a good answer didn't see Trump's Axios interview. It's been reported that Republican election operatives are helping Kanye West get on the ballot in several states in order to potentially siphon votes away from Joe Biden in November. We've all heard Kanye say that slavery was a choice. Well, I guess he chose his master. Vice President Mike Pence said in an interview that Chief Justice John Roberts is a disappointment to conservatives. In Roberts' defense, when you elect a guy like Trump, there are a lot of expectations everyone else has to live down to. The mayor of Luray, Virginia, is being urged to resign after posting to his Facebook page that Joe Biden picked, quote, Aunt Jemima as his running mate. Wow, this guy sounds like a real Betty Cracker. Twitter is going to add a state-sponsored media label to some outlets such as China Daily and Russia Today. Fox News probably won't get that label because it's not actually state-sponsored. It just completely seems that way. Spirit Halloween announced that they will not be opening up their Halloween season brick and mortar stores this year due to COVID-19, which is ironic considering that they are the country's number one seller of masks. Jay Leno tweeted a defense of Ellen DeGeneres saying, quote, I don't discard a 40-year friendship on hearsay. That's true since Jay has only been known to discard friends over TV show jobs. Yesterday, Instagram launched Reels, a new feature meant to compete with TikTok. It makes sense considering both services reward people who are insanely beautiful and don't have any actual talents. Alyssa Milano said that she had the coronavirus back in April and that she felt like she was going to die. To be fair, it was important for her to contract the virus so that she could be an expert about it like she is on every other possible topic. Now, let's send it over to tonight's TMI Daily Cast and Crew Roundtable. Stay safe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of TMI Daily. I'm Veronica Yellow, and as always, I'm joined by some of my TMI Hollywood family. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking about food with the creator and host of the podcast, Dear Food, Ashley Cheney. So make sure you stick around for that. Let's say hello to everyone watching at home or listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or their streaming service of their choice. Let's start with you, Pete. Hey, it's me, and this isn't gel in my hair. I just put water. <laughs> okay, Shada. Hey, what's up, everybody? How's it doing on this thirst day? Joe. Hi, everyone, and to our friends listening on Apple Podcasts, trigger warning, we may be talking about meat, gluten, and possibly non-organic items. That's true. Chris. 
What's up, everybody? How are you? And Emma. Hey, y'all. How you doing? Okay, so let's get started. This morning, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced a lawsuit against the National Rifle Association. In her suit, she claims that the 148-year-old NRA's ability to act as a nonprofit organization has been undermined by years of corruption and misspending. Did any of you not know that the NRA was nonprofit? And if so, how do you feel about them taking in millions of dollars to protect the rights of gun owners and not having to pay taxes? I honestly did not know it was a nonprofit organization. So I'm going to admit that right now. I have no idea. Well, to be fair, it's actually it's both. It's a profit and nonprofit organization. But what they do and what they're kind of in trouble for now and potentially in trouble for is that all of the dirty dealing that they do goes through the nonprofit because nonprofits don't have to actually, um, they don't have to say where their, where their money is going often. Uh, especially if they're giving money to, um, to to special interest groups, they don't have to claim any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they have both. But it's, strangely enough, the nonprofit has you know gets hundreds of millions of dollars, where the profit side always loses money. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about um, the troubles that started four years ago in 2016. Um, so in 2016, which was a presidential election year, the NRA took in 366 million dollars in dues and donations but spent a reported $412 million to help get Donald Trump and other Republican lawmakers elected. They ended the year losing $45 million. The next year, the NRA lost another $17 million. Does anyone know why that was? Well, I, I, again, maybe it's only because I've been reading about this all day, but uh, from what I understand, by actually helping helping the Republicans do so well in 2016, because if everybody remembers, the uh, the Republicans took over both the House and the Senate that year. Uh, they eventually, they essentially, in a way, kind of got rid of all the boogeymen that they were using to scare people prior. So, uh, so there was no Hillary Clinton in the White House. There was no uh, Congress or Senate run by Democrats. So, a lot less people decided in the next couple of years to pay their dues because they really didn't think they needed to because they only assumed that the NRA needed to be around when they were in trouble for things. And so that's, that's what the, what the, the argument is from what I, from what I heard, but it, you know, it could be a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 2018, like Peter was saying, um, the NRA was only able to spend $7.3 million in the midterm elections in comparison they spent more than $27 million during the 2014 midterms. So there, that's some more facts for you. Yeah. Um, so 2018 was also an especially bad year for gun rights groups. After the February 14th mass shooting at Parkland High School and the backlash that followed. Because of all of this, gun rights groups were outspent by gun control groups for the first time in modern politics. Do you think that the gun control lobby has gotten itself organized and this trend will continue into the future? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I I would, I think so, but I don't think that, I mean, uh, Veronica, listen, after, after those elementary school kids were killed in Connecticut and people did nothing, after that happened, that's when I realized that our country did not give a shit about gun control because when those, I mean, they were, they were in first grade. What the hell did they do? 
you know, yeah, but then do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, Mm -hmm. and and no one did anything. I mean, even uh, there's people that deny that even happened. There are deniers that that even happened. Yeah. So it's like, that's the world we live in right now where that is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Joe, did you want to jump in? I was gonna uh, basically say the same thing that uh, that that Shana did. It, like after Sandy Hook, and then there was actually a really good push, uh, but the NRA fought that back. And after that, I was like, "Well, that's it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. really nothing we're gonna do to stop it because if a guy can walk into an elementary school and shoot up a bunch of little kids, and nothing comes of it, well, then." A high school kids is going to be a thing. A nightclub is not going to exactly. be exactly none of those other things. Exactly, I all mean, the other uh, things. That's it. So, uh, but you know, it's it's sort of like, um, um, you know, uh, um, the Untouchables. You know, we're gonna we're gonna get them through uh, 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 some legal means, some some uh, bad taxes. <laughs> it's like a boat. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to tie all of that back into your original question as well, uh, there there were a, like a series of reasons why we collectively did nothing after Sandy Hook and after Pulse, like all these things. Um, and none of them are good enough reasons, obviously. But uh, one of them was that the gun control lobby, like there is no equivalent in gun control to the NRA. Granted, the NRA is the all-time like biggest lobbying force, but like there is no one, there hasn't historically been like one specific gun control group that has been able to fight them as effectively. It's been a bunch of smaller groups that's been trying haphazardly to make something happen. Uh, I think those groups are starting to come together now that you've got kids who can speak for themselves and have minds of their own, who can be their spokespeople, who have been, who can go up and say, hey, there was a mass shooter at my school. I'm 17. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what, uh, what actually, what I'm saying is 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 completely true. But what, what's actually really interesting, I I mean, for all the things that the NRA does, I think the thing that they're most brilliant at, if, if you want to call it that, is that they've kind of put themselves together with the Second Amendment in a way that no other group could possibly have done. You know, when when, it, when again when we were doing the research into this today, you you find out that there's hundreds of gun rights groups, groups that are actually doing essentially the same thing that the NRA is doing. The only difference is they don't have the, the means to reach the influence the NRA has. So now anytime anything happens to the NRA specifically, they don't say, well, you know, it could be anything that we've done wrong ourselves. They say, oh, this is attack on the uh, on the Second Amendment, which which is crazy, because if you think about it, it's kind of like if, if some if like a health inspector closed the McDonald's, McDonald's wouldn't come out the next day and say this is an attack against Hamburg. Because it's just it's just not the same thing. But that's essentially what the NRA is doing with, with with guns. They're saying anytime that you say anything wrong against us for any reason, and and you know from from all the stuff we're going to talk about now, there is a ton of reasons why why the NRA should be questioned, especially because of their uh, their status as a charity that have nothing to do with the Second Amendment. They just have to do with mismanagement and misappropriation of funds. And, and again, the second you say anything about it, it's immediately an attack against the Second Amendment, which is just brilliant if, if you think about it. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's one of those, like, you know, you asked earlier if like, um, if I had a problem with them being a nonprofit, but making a lot of money, I mean, 
you know, I, I'm not trying to compare it as like this kind of apples and oranges, but like, you know, religion is the same thing. You know, they, a lot of people, a lot of churches and stuff like that donate to political parties to get their way and stuff like that. And they've been collecting tax free for this, about the same amount of time as the NRA, if not even longer. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I don't have I don't have a problem in the sense of that. And also, it's one of those things, too, where it's like, you know, you're never going to get rid of the NRA because you're never going to get rid of guns, especially in this country, because we always preach freedom and then taking people's guns away is you're going against the freedom that we're preaching. Like, yes, it, would we be safer? Probably. There's studies that show that we'd be safer, but it's also the same logic of people who want to smoke cigarettes. You know I mean? Like you can tell them it's going to kill them, but are they going to go to the store and buy that $15 pack of cigarettes? Yep. You know what I mean? Like there's really nothing you can do to stop them. And, if, and you're never going to get rid of the NRA because they helped during after the Cold War, the NRA was responsible for getting half the arms that America bought up, be distributed around the world. Most people don't know that, but that's a true fact. They helped but sell those guns. At, Chris, Chris, look at what you just did. You actually just kind of proved the point I was making, which was the second we talked, you started talking about the NRA, you, you took it away from the NRA and just made it about somebody taking away their uh, people's guns. And that's, and that's exactly what the NRA has done mm -hmm. because... The NRA has nothing to do with 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 whether or not somebody's going to take away your guns. And if the NRA disappeared tomorrow, there'd be a hundred other groups that would would still have the ability to fight for the rights of gun owners. But the NRA uses their 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 influence to basically tell you if we're not here, then your guns aren't here. And, and that's it's insidious in a way because because they've gotten away with things that that are essentially criminal activities. Because of the fact that they've been able to make people believe, well, if we're not around, the, the uh, Second Amendment goes away too, and that's and that's just it's it's just absurd when you really think about it. But also, you have to remember that the NRA, when it started, and for because we're talking about 140 years, probably up until the early 70s, was not that kind of organization. They were actually a pretty fair organization for people that owned guns. Um, it, it wasn't until the 70s when a certain group came in. And decided to run things a little bit more like I don't know the Teamsters, uh, and uh, and things change, you know. Uh, so uh, not to I know everyone easily wants to wants to bash the NRA, and I I'm I'm with you on that. Even though I believe uh, in the right to own a gun under certain, I have my my certain limits on that. But um, uh, yeah, they used to be a really good organization back way, way back when, if you look through their history, just like Chris had said with the, back in the 50s and whatnot. Okay. So 2019 was a major problem for the NRA as they engaged in a lawsuit with their longtime public relations firm, Ackerman McQueen. The firm was responsible for getting Charlton Heston to say the famous line, you can have my rifle when you rip it from my cold, dead hands, back in 2000. The firm also created NRA TV, which first premiered in 2016 as a way to try and give the group a more visible presence and also appeal to a younger audience. The problem for NRA TV was that there's only so much positive gun content you can create before far-right materials start to seep in, which is what happened to them by early 2019 when the NRA who paid Ackerman McQueen a reported $40 million a year asked to see where the money for NRA TV was going mm -hmm. and found that they, the NRA, had been paying their own president, Oliver North, $1 million to host shows on NRA TV. 
something they embarrassingly did not know. They ended up suing Ackerman for not disclosing financial information to them, but the fallout from the suit made it worse for them. Does anyone know what happened as a result of the Ackerman lawsuit? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, what, what happened was, I mean, for, for again, from the stuff we were reading earlier today, the NRA did not even know how much money they were paying their own staff to be part of NRA TV. Like uh, you, had, you had Oliver North, you know, who most people would probably remember as being the, the guy behind Iran-Contra back when Reagan was, was president. Um, he, he actually was getting paid by this company, Ackerman McQueen, to do television shows as part of NRA TV, but he wasn't disclosing it to the organization that he was running. And then when they found out, they had, they were actually, you know, kind of, they, everybody looked at them like, well, how do you not know that your own staff is, is getting paid this much money? And, and so what happened was it all of a sudden caused caused people to go in and start questioning what the board what their board was doing and who was getting paid for what. And again, because half of their money or more than half of their money comes goes into a charitable account versus you know a smaller portion that goes into the in, into the paid version of, of the NRA that the one that is taxable. It started opening the doors for like all these these investigations because now. They couldn't. They they couldn't claim that they knew where their money was going at any given time, and and that's that's where you know you know what started happening. Like they they uh, they didn't know for, they didn't know that how much they were paying their uh, their their CEO one one late Lapierre. I think he gets paid something like one point four million a year. But then they found out he was spending like almost a, almost a quarter of a million dollars to travel um, all the time each year. And and, like, and again. The board claimed that they had no knowledge of it. I guess because if they claimed that they did have knowledge of it, then they would be comparable, you know, as far as as far as whatever ramifications would come from the money that they were spending. So they had to actually say, "We're stupid. We don't know what we're doing." And that was, and wasn't that because of investigations that, like, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, um, were doing, Pete? Yeah, That's there was a ton of. There, there was like, I think the Wall Street Journal apparently was the first ones who did who did the an New York Times, uh, the New Yorker, yeah. and, and and they just basically they went in and they were looking at all these all the money that was being spent, and what they found out was that the NRA was 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 giving that there was a small group of people involved in the NRA, some of the top executives, but then some of their contractors and some of the people that they did business with, mm-hmm. yeah, some of the vendors that they what they were actually doing was. In order to funnel money from the from the charitable end of it, they were giving them contracts for things that didn't actually happen. Like like oh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this project at X place, so we're gonna hire these contractors to, to put together the project, and they would just funnel the funnel the money to the to, to the to the contractors, and no, nothing would ever get done. But on paper, it showed that they were doing stuff. So it was money laundering, basically. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they they been, they, like, they essentially been money laundering for years. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and again, what the problem is, it, once the money starts coming out of the charity, as we're all going to start to realize when, when Trump gets indicted in a, in a few more months, it, it has to be accountable. You know, it's funny because you can pay money out and not ever give record to it. But at the same time, if you can't account for every dollar you've spent in a charity, you go to jail. And that's, and that's essentially what, 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 they, what they're trying to say is, is, what, is why the NRA should no longer be a charity. And if they're not a charity, then, then they cannot exist any longer because there's no way for them to make enough money to, to, to be influential and also 
do what they want as far as as far as pushing forward their agendas. Mm -hmm. So also in 2019, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo started an investigation into an NRA branded insurance called Carry Guard, which critics have called murder insurance. Why Ooh. is that? Cuomo blocked the sale of Carry Guard in New York State and threatened any company that offered to carry the NRA insurance policy. Well, well, he see, the, the thing is, Carry Guard, and, and again, it, I didn't know this until a few hours ago. When I found out, I was like, "Holy shit, this is crazy!" Carry Guard is is it's a program that um, that the NRA started um, where you where somebody could buy insurance. In the event, and, and, and the only thing it's for is in the event you shoot somebody and it's not ruled a, 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 a rightful shooting for whatever reason, if like it's not, they'll, they'll defend you and they'll they'll pay for it. So so you essentially have insurance to shoot people, um, and it's and that's why they call it the, the murder insurance because it only kicks in if, if it's if it's not if it's not considered to be illegal kill, um, either shooting or killing. Mm -hmm. So then the NRA sued Cuomo and the state of New York, but the case was dismissed with prejudice against the NRA because the judge said the NRA could not prove their claims against the state. With this lawsuit happening, it opened the door for the NRA's former president, Oliver North, who we just talked about, to shine a light on the amount of money the NRA spends each year. With its lead attorney, Brewer Law, and whether this was due to a lack of oversight by the NRA's board. Since then, there have been multiple investigations into the finances of the group, which leads us to today. Do you think that New York State has a chance to actually cause the, the dissolution, excuse me, dissolution of the NRA? Sorry. <laughs> nah. Now, no, I, I, think, I, I think they could, because I, I think that the, the NRA is in such a disarray that, that they may not have the ability to fight um, the way that they want to, because now you've got, you, you've got the full power of New York State going after them. And, and it's, what's interesting is that Letitia James, who's the, the, the district attorney of New York, uh, not district, the, uh, the attorney general of New York, she actually ran on this. That she was going to try and find a way to, to shut down the NRA. Um, and, and so, you know, again, this, you got to take out the, 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 the side of it where, where we're, we're talking about second amendment, because the second amendment is going to stay no matter whether the NRA is there or not. And, and, but, you know, right now they have a president, they have, I mean, they have a CEO that's under investigation, not just from externally, but also internally because his own board doesn't trust him any longer. They've got the old president, Oliver North. Who's, who's, who's apparently now, I guess the same way he did with Iran-Contra, is more than willing to give up anybody that he can in order to say, look, I was wrong, so now I'm going to burn everybody around me. And then you have all of these other people, they're, 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 lawyer, they're lawyers, the, uh, the, the, ad, the, the PR company, you know, some of these vendors that are now coming forward and saying, yeah, yeah, I took money from them, but I didn't know it was, it was being done illegally. So yeah, they probably could do it. Now, whether or not they do, it's a whole other story. Well, I mean, that, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see those kinds of people leave, but I think what will be left will be rebuilt. Um, you're not going to see the NRA go away. It may be under new management, um, but I don't think you're going to see it go away. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think yeah. that they may, I mean, the same way, if they, I mean, they're going to rebrand themselves the same way they right. did this, the Charlton Heston thing. They will figure out a way to rebrand themselves. I mean, look, the KKK still exists. 
you know, they've rebranded themselves. They redeveloped a new thing to, to be more, to be attractive, to be another thing that, you know what I'm saying? These organizations like this, they'll exist. They, they still will. That's yeah. right. And you, and you know, with the way that, uh, uh, we had the dumbing down of America. I think their new name will be Gun Good Fire Bad. <laughs> I want to read a comment from Melissa from online. Um, she says, with a nonprofit, every penny has to be counted. You cannot be careless. And she should know because she runs a nonprofit herself. Um, so according to a 2017 study, two thirds of Americans don't own a gun. And as the average age of gun owners has continued to rise, it's fair to say that even less people in the U.S. will own guns in the future. To finish off this topic today, do you ever foresee a time when the U.S. might have some form of comprehensive gun control? Absolutely. If, well, comprehensive. How do you mean comprehensive? Because, you know, uh, that's like the same thing as like, will, there, will we ever have a comprehensive touch on drugs? No. Other than like the drugs that are sold in the stores right now that are legal, you know what I mean? Or the things that are given to you by a doctor, but like, there's really never going to be any kind of comprehensive control on, on, on guns because no matter what, like people are going to want them, people are going to have them and, you know, illegal or legal, people are going to have them, you know what I mean? Like, cause people do that now. I mean, I mean I've, I've seen people who, you know, even people that I knew in the, in the military, like just to have guns, they like sent pieces at a time home from Iraq to have the guns to put it back together. So if people want guns, they're going to have guns. They're not going to go away. So unless you completely like send out some kind of like squad to go through people's houses and search down and, 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 you know, take their guns away and, and melt them all. That's the only way you're going to have a comprehensive hold on um, gun control. Well, that's, that's not the question she was asking though. Cause we're not talking about whether or not people break the law. We can't like, obviously the police or whomever will investigate that and deal with that on a case-by-case -case basis. But my understanding of the question was, what's the government gonna do and all they can do is pass laws. So to use your example, we do have comprehensive drug-like laws. Whether or not they're right is a different question, but like we do have like governmental law control over you know, heroin, cocaine, like that, that exists, we have that. And I think that we can have that with guns as well, because no one's talking about taking away all guns. That's just not part of any reasonable modern platform. But everyone's saying that like, nobody needs to have a machine gun or a semi-automatic. And I think that that's something that we can see and sooner than we think, because we've got a whole generation of people who are just coming up into adulthood now, where a lot of them are gonna move into politics and they're gonna move into public service and they've all had active shooter drills and they're sick of it. Joe? Yeah, I, you know, to kind of bounce off what Emma was saying, Gun control does not mean getting rid of all guns. And I think that's a big thing. And I think that's something that the NRA tries to, tries to push. And that's not the case. I personally believe that if we treated a gun a lot more like a car, uh, mm -hmm. things would be a lot better. You know, you, can, you need to have a license. You need to take a test to show your proficiency. Then you know how to use it. You know how to store it. You know how to take it apart and clean it. Uh, you know, all of these different things. And you, I th really think you should actually have an eye check I test to have a gun just like you have a car. Uh, it's the same thing. I mean, cars are just as dangerous. So, and then also, you know, you can have a race car. You can't drive it on the street. You know, it's that same thing. There's certain guns we just, you just can't have. But, you know, you want to have a hunting rifle, you know, feel free. Take the test, get the license. But I'm saying, though, it's like we, I mean, so that, that's kind of the point that I'm making. Like, we do have these laws, but they're about guns that you can and can't have. But, 
there are still people who are preaching about more gun control. Well, what, what more control can you have? If you're not talking about getting rid of all of them, then what's the step just be it no, below? We don't really have gun control right now. I mean, yeah, we right. have, I was going to say we, there isn't. We have any. almost right. no control over guns. I, I mean, you know, when, when Joe said the thing about like if they treated more like cars, they don't treat it all like cars. Because no. in order to have a car, you actually have to have a license. You have to have you have to have insurance. In parts of this country, you can go to a gun show, walk in, get a gun without any with, without even identification. And walk out two seconds later. There, you know, there are parts. There, there are places now. Now, when when people say about like, oh, we need to have common sense gun control laws. I think what they're saying more than anything else is that we need to have the ability to say, you know, you should be able to get a background check on somebody. I mean, that's that, I mean, that's that's number one. I mean, sure. people people need to have background checks. You know, instead, what they you know what the NRA does is they say, oh no, no, we should spend more money on mental health. Because if there's less crazy people, then you don't have to worry about a crazy person buying a gun, which you is know, the most illogical argument in the world. It's because of the NRA that we didn't like like gun registered guns are not put on a database because of the NRA. Mm -hmm. Everything is all done by paper and it all sits in one warehouse in West Virginia. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of paper. That's the gun registration. So if you get if a cop gets it and they want to run the registration, they even stop doing it because they have to send this out. They have to call up this warehouse in West Virginia, and then someone has to go out and go through all of these files, all this stuff. And you know, and 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 I saw a reporter that went out there. The, the paper's getting wet and things like that because they won't put it into an electronic database because the NRA says if you do that, then that's how they're going to take your guns because take then they have it all away. on a computer. Right. That's silly. That's stupid. Okay, so with that thought, we're going to go to Ashley now. She's waiting to come on with us. So. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's go from guns to food, shall we? Guns to food. <laughs> Anything goes. <laughs> so let's get her on here. Hi, Ashley. Can you hear me? Hi, I sure can. Can you hear me? Yes. How are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on. Ah, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. How's everybody doing? We're doing well. Thank you. <laughs> Good, so, Ashley. So you're the creator and host of the podcast called Dear Food. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got started with it and where can people listen to it? And what yeah, can I talk about it? It's my favorite thing to talk about it. It's why I started a podcast. Um, so like many of you, I have a background in TV and film, um, really production. I've been a producer my whole life. And then about, I don't know, two or three years ago, I decided it was not as um, people facing as I really wanted to be. So I transitioned to the other side of the camera, did some hosting. Right. So I'd be on these red carpets and I'd be talking to celebrities. And um, I noticed that like it wasn't really lighting me up. It wasn't really the thing that I was super excited to be doing. But what I did love and what I did notice is that on the red carpet, when a celebrity would kind of like stonewall me or not give me an answer or we were having like a cold interview, if I started talking about food, the interview would change immediately. They would open up. I could get anybody to talk to me. And I was like, wow, this is like really awesome. Um, you know, I, I want to take this skill and use it. So I've been able to take that love of food and that sort of, I think everybody likes to talk about food and transition it into this thing that is a marriage of all the things I know, producing, hosting, and talking about food. And so Dear Food was born and you can um, listen to it wherever you find your podcast, but usually um, Apple Podcasts, it's out. Okay, great. So in your information, you said that your listeners are people who love to eat, 
like foodies and amateur and professional chefs. So considering the pandemic, which is obviously causing more people to eat at home and cook at home, me included, um, do you see, um, do you, do you tend to see a trend that people are sticking to more traditional cooking? Like they're trying to become better at what they normally cook or are people getting more adventurous by trying new recipes? Like what I've been doing. (laughs) Well, I love that question, Veronica. It's really great because I think that like the pandemic itself, we as, as home chefs have gone through different phases, right? So at the start of the pandemic, it was all about comfort. And that usually meant going back to foods that we knew that we loved you know, either making in our own home or having someone else make for us. So I think at the very beginning, you know, we'll remember back, remember back to the banana breads, the sourdough breads, that phase, um, people really being in their kitchen, making things that were comfortable to them. I think now that we've settled in and particularly out here in California and we're realizing we've got a lot of time on our hands, um, I have noticed people being a bit more adventurous, um, especially because as a lot of companies cooking cool, cooking schools in particular, who need to take their business online, they can't have classes in person, people are able to have these incredible chefs in their kitchen with them. So like, for example, I had an incredible Thai chef in my kitchen over Zoom, and I made uh, this dish that I, I don't even know if I can still recreate now without him here, but we were able to do that. So I think the phase that we're at now is that people are really trying to be adventurous. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you think is going to be the long-term effect of, of the pan- pandemic in restaurant dining and in restaurant dining? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that we're going to see a lot of those smaller restaurants that, you know, mom and pop shops or, or smaller restaurants might not be able to come back for a while. We've already seen some doors close. Some places that I love here in LA have had to shut their doors. There's just not enough business to sustain, um, you know, the, the lack of, of business throughout the pandemic. But um, the, the truth of the matter is like dining out isn't going anywhere in the long run. If we're really talking long run, if we're looking at the next year even or year and a half, people, we've, we've seen that people love to eat out. It's a huge part of our culture and it will be back. I just think it's going to take some time. And I do think that we are going to see, as we already have, some of those, some of those small businesses not able to hang right now. But um, let's all keep our fingers crossed that they're able to come back stronger after this. Yeah, and I think it's also very important to keep supporting our local restaurants. You know, we try to do takeout once or twice a week. So, you know, to keep those businesses going. Um, Before I hand it over to the panel, I have one more question for you. What's one of your all-time favorite recipes and why? Okay, so my favorite recipe ever is not necessarily like an easy one, but it's the one that... um, I won my boyfriend's family over with, and it's my, it's my cinnamon roll recipe. And it is, is not particularly easy. It takes a lot of time. It's handmade cinnamon rolls, but they taste like cinnamon. um, Do you guys know that cinnamon? um, What's the cinnamon roll shop that I can't, the Cinnabon. 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 Yes. Yes. It's Cinnabon, but like better because it's fresh ingredients and fresh butter and real sugar. And um, it's delicious. So, but it it is a, a labor of love and it takes time. Oh, it sounds amazing. Yeah. So does anybody have any questions for Ashley? Oh, go ahead, Emma. Let's start with you. Uh, what do you constitute a great restaurant? A great restaurant. Wow, that's such a that's such a good question. Okay, off the bat, a great restaurant to me is a place that um, I'm not going to say that all chains are are. I, I'm not going to like dismiss them, but usually I like one of a kind, really craft, really. Um, you know, small and niche so that they can focus on their specialty. That's what really kind of lights me up. So I love really unique spots that are like right in their lane and have their specialties. And you, it's difficult to find anything like that anywhere else. 
Uh, I'm thinking of a Jamaican spot in, um, in Brooklyn that I, the name escapes me, but I'm like, the, it was, you know, seat four to six people, best dish I've ever had. I love those spots. I have a, a special Wait, 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 let me ask you this. Yes. In the restaurant, were they mean to you? I wouldn't say they were terribly friendly. Like okay, they weren't like chit-chatting. That means it was good. Yes. If you're making a restaurant, if they're nice to you, get out. Get out. <laughs> you know, it's not good. In general, I kind of want people to be mean to me when they're serving me food. I don't know. I'm like... It's, it only it's works at like Jamaican restaurant or like Chinese restaurant. If they're mean to you or like ha- like are like kind of rude, then that means the food is perfect. You're <laughs> onto something. I worked in a restaurant in New York where we were supposed to be mean. That was like oh, our really? little bag was to as the waiters was to be rude to the. Was it the Eddie Bab? Is it Eddie Babbitt or what was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we used to have one here in LA too. I remember. <laughs> Wait, what's Eddie Babbitt? Is that where they put those those white hats on your head with like the names well, written? I think on that it? one's Dick's Last Resort. Dick's Last, Dick's Resort. Last Resort. It was yeah, it was similar to that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Pete, you're muted, Pete. You're muted. <laughs> I, I think it's actually called Ed the Bevins. It's it's from Chicago. Yeah, it's um, yeah. And if you go there, they insult you, which that's great. <laughs> We're all just gluttons for for punishment <laughs> and torture. One of the things that I've been enjoying about uh, the pandemic is like stuff that was like. <laughs> Like you went to a certain place to get it. And now they were like, well, well now we're going to put these recipes online for you to try and make them at home. And while yeah. some of them were, were great and easy, I, I, you know, I'm a, you, you all know I'm a big Disneyland fan. So I've been trying to make some of the Disneyland foods that help make me remember. So I made Mickey pretzels, which were kind of fun and things like that. And then you start getting, and then like you get a recipe and, and I think sometimes chefs are a little like, Oh, they're not like, giving like, you they, the they, full they Like it says, so first, <laughs> open the vanilla bean and scrape out. And I'm like, dude, I'm in that kitchen. I'm a single guy. Come on. Uh, is there any, like, like it, is there some way to like get around to like, I think some of these guys go a little bananas. Is there some way to get around that to make it a little easier? <laughs> yeah, well, I think also I, I, I'd be hard pressed to find a chef that's going to give you their real recipe, like the real deal. For sure, they're going to be like, oh, I'm not exactly sure how much I use or just use yeah. what you can find. It's like I was going to say vague. They give vague. They're, they'll yeah. give you the ingredients, but then they don't give you measurements yeah. or they'll be like, you know, I just use a pinch or a scotch or whatever. And you're like, how much is a freaking scotch? How much yeah. is a pinch? What am I doing? Well, how much am I putting in? Yeah, you know, just mean, until you, it's, it, it's, so it's wet, but not too wet. You know what I mean? But I don't need the recipe to say fly out to Morocco and get some saffron. I'm like, no, I can't do that. It's only $40 a pound, Joe. I know. <laughs> I have a Why did you think that Sarah? I could make this? <laughs> I have a question for Kathy from Sarah online. Um, She's asking any good gluten-free recipe recommendations. That you oh have. my gosh, funny that you should mention that. I'm on a gluten-free kick right now. And I say kick because I like go through diet phases because like I can't really stick to it for that long. Um, but so um, if you're California or New York too, there should be Trader Joe's. Um, Trader Joe's has this, this new product, new product alert. I'm kind of also another great podcast, by the way, is the Trader Joe's podcast. Weird that a grocery store would have a podcast that like rocks, but they do. And it's so fun. Um, but I learned about these things called these, they're jicama tortillas. So it's like a tortilla, which we can't have. And you could do corn, corn tortillas, but those still actually kind of mess me up. So these are straight jicama, like the crunchy jicama, but it's shaped like a tortilla and it is awesome. And so you can just 
fixed like tacos or whatever you would normally put. I've also been on a fish taco kick like crazy over the summer um, and pop that in the jicama shell with some cabbage and some fun aioli or some sour cream if that's your jam or some alternative sour cream on that jicama shell. It's awesome. That that's sounds really good. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really good. And refreshing. It is. And you don't feel like, you know, a really bad glutton at the end. <laughs> Any more questions for Ashley? I mean, it I depends actually, on how many tacos, Ashley. I, do I, do like I, <laughs> I like Trader Joe's because there's only four parking spaces, so they already social distance before this pandemic ever started. <laughs> uh, that's like a qualification for a Trader Joe's parking lot. Is your gar- is your parking lot garbage? Great. Like, let's take it. Let's build a Trader Joe's there. <laughs> Sarah says yum. So I think she liked her response. Pete, I hope you like it, Sarah. So I, I wanted to ask, um, I, I, I keep reading stories about like I think the, the somebody said that uh, one in four restaurants in New York City is going to be closed probably by the end of this pandemic, which is terrible. Um, and um, I saw a news report about uh, Yum Brands, which is the the, the 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 restaurant chain that owns like KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, The Habit. Um, how they actually uh, said, in, I guess, in an earnings call that that um, they think that they're doing better now without having in in-house dining than they were doing before. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you think that this is going to cause a shift where, where the country might end up having more fine dining in-house restaurants and less fast food in, in, in you know, in ha- in-house dining? I mean, casual. In, I see. Yeah. yeah. Casual dining. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. That's a really great question. And I would be, I would be interested to see how that trend um, goes. One thing that I know for sure is that curbside pickup is not going anywhere because I think that we've all learned, come to really enjoy that part of the pandemic, of like not actually having to get out of our cars and, and being able to pick up restaurant food and take it back to our house, like in this super easy way. Um, so I don't think that any kind of curbside pickup is going anywhere, whether it's from a current casual dining or, you know, your fast food drive-through situation. Um, I think, but you're really onto something there with this idea that dining in is like going to become more and more of a luxury in some ways it already is because it's it, the, what it takes to go out to a restaurant now is so much more taxing um, than, you know, than it was before. And to that end, I think if you're a good human, you're hopefully tipping a lot more than you normally would be. So you have the resources to like be generous to the people that you're going out to, you know, be served from. Um, so I would not be surprised to see that. Yeah. Uh, it trending more towards it really being a, a luxury experience dining out in a sit down fashion. It's an interesting yeah. point. You made an actual, a uh, very good point about the curbside, you know, pickup, because even like the higher end restaurants are starting to do that now. Like our favorite restaurant here in LA is Rayo's. And oh. I think we were actually one of their first on um, takeout. Uh, Peter and I are married, by the way. <laughs> so we oh. were, um, so I think we were one of the first um, people to get, you know, takeout from them because they were still kind of learning the system. And it was just, you know, it was so weird for them. They're like, oh, you know, we're just starting to do a special menu for takeout. But yeah, it's, you know, people really enjoy it. And I just, you know, like I said, I just hope, you know, we just have to keep supporting, supporting, you know, the the smaller restaurants and let's keep these people afloat. So, you know, it used to be like, I would treat myself once a year at a Pacific dining car. I really do like it, but it's, it's out of my, out of my, uh, uh, you know, uh, financial goal. But since this started, like their curbside is 30% off. Because they're they're they're, just, they're now they're making and now it's like I I've had it twice now and I'm like I've never had it twice in a year and it's really great because now it's somewhat affordable and it's just as good it's just as delicious 
Mm-hmm. Hot tip for Pacific Dining Car: Get on their mailing list because yes. they are you are you on the mailing list? Oh yeah, they send out incredible specials and don't sleep on that happy hour. They have like five dollar burgers for their happy hour. Amazing. Ooh. Oh yeah, the, and then the uh, uh, when they have their anniversary and they have their baseball steak, really really cheap. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I went on a date for that very special. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a really great tip. So, any more questions for Ashley? Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. So come back and see us anytime. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite. It's so fun to chat food. If anybody wants to learn how to make sourdough bread, uh, we're teaching. I have my guest, one of my guests on my podcast is going to have a class this Sunday. So I'll um, I'll comment with the link afterwards and you guys can, it's totally free and it's lots of fun and we give away prizes and you can learn how to make bread. So that's fun. I think we'll do that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's so fun. Yeah, we actually bought, well, actually, Peter bought a cheese making kit that we've never used. It's still sitting in our pantry. You know, <laughs> since Peter's been writing cheese for the last eight years, he might as well start making it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, let's start making our own cheese when the pandemic first started. He's like, let's just make our own cheese. I'm like, okay. So we have. I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. Who no. Oh, no. But maybe now we can learn how to make sourdough bread. So if we're available, we're definitely, you know, going to check it out, actually. So flour and water. It's literally flour and water. It's so easy. And oh, it's, cheese, I can't help you with. You're on your own. Let me know how that goes. But <laughs> bread is really just flour and water. Super easy. Okay, great. And then the information about your podcast is also on our Instagram page. So awesome. thanks again for joining us. And we hope to have you back soon. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Have a thanks, good Ashley. night. Bye. Bye. Okay, so it's time for just one. Wait, wait, hold on one second. I just want to say my favorite moment of the interview was when she asked what the uh, what the cinnamon company was. Both Joe and I were the first to scream cinnamon. (laughs) I I have no idea why, but I noticed that. I, I, it was, I was on mute. That's the only reason why I was like, oh, shoot. I, I wanted to say it with my mouth full. <laughs> you know. it, was, it was almost like we were fighting to see who could get it out first. The only reason to fly on a Terminal 4 is to get one of those. Seriously. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so it's time for just one question. I'm going to pick some of the topics from the top of the show and ask you one question about that topic. This week has not been a really good one for Ellen DeGeneres. She started off the week apologizing for the allegations of a toxic work environment at her show, although she never claimed to be part of it. The same day, one of her former producers said that they had that they felt Ellen encouraged some of her producers to be overly aggressive with the staff, saying that she referred to one of her producers as her attack dog. On Tuesday, rumors came out that James Corden was in discussions to take over the show. And all week, whenever some celebrity has defended Ellen, whether it be Ashton Kutcher or Jay Leno, they have been taken to task on social media. So my question is, in order to save her career, should Ellen voluntarily leave the show at this point? Or should she fight to keep the show with the idea that she can make it a more harmonious environment? I think number two. I think she should definitely fight. I mean, she worked her ass off to get that show, and it's been on, you know, the air for for so long. If now, I'm only saying this if she is indeed not part of the problem. You know what I mean? Because if she's like, if it's not her, if it's not her being directly involved, you know what I mean? Because like, saying somebody's your, your attack dog, that doesn't necessarily mean that like she was out there making them fucking. You know, he could just be like the guy that she goes to when she needs to get shit done. 
but right. it has to do with it has nothing to do with the way he does get it done. You know what I mean? So like, if she has nothing to do with it, then she should definitely fight for it because don't let somebody else's actions, you know, take you down after the hard work that you put in all the years and struggle that you put in to get there. But if she is part of the problem, then she definitely should, you know, own up to it and leave gracefully. But I hope to God James Corden doesn't take over because that motherfucker is annoying. I can't stand him either. I don't like him at all. And I don't think he's funny. I really don't. Yeah. Emma. I mean, not that this isn't the question, but I do like James Corden. Like, oh. You get out of here. Oh, I I like him too. Don't be shady. Thank you, Shayna. Uh, but to actually, like, the actual answer I was going to give you, um, I there, there are two things I'm going to say about this. One is that if you've got that kind of a toxic work environment, that usually comes from the top. Uh, like, that usually comes from the leader. They set the, the mood for the entire community. Uh, I have never worked with Ellen. I don't know her personally. I have nothing about that. All I can tell you is that I do know one person who did work on one of her shows and didn't meet her. But this person, you know, when they were first hired, was told, like, you were not going to meet Ellen. But if you do meet Ellen, never look her in the eyes. Do not mention animals, especially meat. Do not mention her wife. This is like a huge deal. Like, you have to memorize these rules. So, listen, everybody has their things. Maybe, like, she just doesn't realize that she's creating this kind of environment. Maybe she just needs to, like, take a couple weeks and, like, have some self-reflection. Maybe it's entirely other people. I don't know personally. But I think that all of these things are indicative of a certain personality type. Really quick, Emma, I have a question. So your friend worked on the Ellen show, worked or worked for her like separately somewhere else. Ellen's Game of Games. Oh, okay. And then and they never and he never he or she never met her. No. That is so that's crazy. I mean, to me, that's just like you know. I don't know. I have my own thoughts well, about it's, that. It's like it's like the story that the, that uh, I guess it was an Australian broadcaster uh, came out with the other day that said that she was booked to be on their show as like a co-host for, for like, it was a morning show. I think it was in Melbourne, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, they, and so she initially was booked to be there the whole morning. The morning of the show, they got a memo saying that she was gonna come in and instead of doing the whole show, they were giving her five minutes and they had a list of things that they weren't allowed to talk about. And the host was never to look at her directly. And so they said that the, uh, they said that the video exists, so if anybody wanted to see it, you could see that he literally is looking the other way while having a conversation with her. So uh, it's not like it's the first time people have said this about her. Yeah, I've heard that too. Mm-hmm. That's why I was just, you know, just wanted to confirm that. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, Joe. Um, as far as her fight or flight, I think it goes down to, um, is, her, is her fan base uh, uh, with her or against her? Is her fan base uh, going to, do they believe it? If they do, do they forgive her or stuff like that? That's what it goes down to. Because mm-hmm. if she stays to fight, but she doesn't have that fan base behind her, I think it's a problem. Now, now I, my gut feeling is that uh, she'll still probably retain a lot of those fans for a while. I mean, um, I think what happens internally in Hollywood isn't really what her normal fan base gives a crap about. So I think if they're still entertained, then she should fight. But if she's seeing that the fan base is all turning against her, uh, maybe step back. Well, and I think it also depends on the fans, too, because, like, at least for me personally, like, if I'm a fan of someone and I find out that they do something like that or that they do something where they're disrespectful to other fans or to the people that they work with, 
I'm completely turned off by them. You know, I mean, a good example that I can that I can bring up on the other side is I, ha I know somebody who's worked on a couple of um, music videos with Ricky Martin. And one of the things that he always said to me is he is the kindest person. He sits and has lunch with them. It's not like, oh, he's I mean, I'm a huge Ricky Martin fan and hearing those stories about him makes me an even bigger fan of his, you know, because again, because it shows a level of humility. But to me personally, that's important for me. You know, if I'm going to look up to someone, if I'm going to give someone my money or, you know, I want to know that they're, that they're a good person, that they're, you know, they're kind, that they're, they don't feel like they're above somebody else. I but, agree with you. But I agree yeah, with you. That's how I am again. And to some people, they might not care about that kind of stuff. You know, they're able to separate the person from the actual, you know, a public figure, but at least me personally, I can't do that. But for me, that's hard because especially when you're talking about somebody like Ellen, who is the product and the brand and the spokesperson, you know, it's, it's very difficult to separate her from mm -hmm. any of her stuff because she's not, I mean, because she hasn't done stand up in a really long time. So it's not that, you know what I mean? It's not, she hasn't done film in a very long time. It's not that. Right. So her public persona, the persona we see is a heightened version of herself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, that's what, that's what people have drawn themselves to is her being her, which we know isn't really her, her being her on the show. Well, as much as her that she's going to do with the public, but that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, so I agree with what Emma's saying. I've worked, I haven't worked with Ellen, but I have worked on other TV shows where there is a celebrity in charge. The celebrity who is in charge and the executive producer set the tone of the show. You are absolutely correct with that. So however they behave and however they behave to their employees is how everybody on set behaves and how they treat people. And once the show is a success and you get into running the daily maneuver, the minutia of running a show that's a huge hit on top of that, when you don't need your audience, there's people waiting. You turn people away every day. There's also that there, there comes a certain level with that as well that you start to think you are above stuff because you aren't desperate. You don't have staff running down Wilshire Boulevard looking for audience to fill your audience to make sure, you know, you're telling people to go home basically. So because of a lot of that, that changes your position within the talk show world. But I do think answering what everybody was talking about, I think there, if anything, Kelly Clarkson could take the thunder that Ellen has because she has been, and Chris, the only reason why I'm saying this is because the show Kelly's been putting out live shows the entire time. Mm. She has not stopped producing the shows and she has had guests on via zoom. She's done. You know what I'm saying? Like she's done that. And that isn't the case. And I'm a fan of Ellen's. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm a fan of any woman who made her shit work in the eighties and nineties and fucking still has her, you know, and is doing it like, just like I'm a fan of Oprah. Man, you did it. You made it happen when nobody was going to make it happen for you. Good on you. You deserve every minute. However, I will say that. I will say that there, there could be a coup in the daytime talk show world because of that. Before I go to you, Emma. Sorry, Pete, could I just say one more thing? Because I'm yeah, gonna yeah, yeah, sorry. So yeah. I think one of the issues, too, you know, with some celebrities, and Ellen might be one of them, is that I think sometimes they're in a character. And they stay in this character. So we start romanticizing the idea of this person, like, oh, look how wonderful that, when you don't really know what they really are like. And I think that happens with a lot of celebrities. 
And I mean, I can think of a couple that I personally have met that I can honestly say, oh, they're always in character. They're not really being real and who they are. So I think that's also an another issue too. Um, I'm going to go to Emma and then I'll go to you, Pete. Okay, I, uh, I agree with all that. And I, I just, I also want to acknowledge like she's probably always going to have her fans because she's also such a huge trailblazer. The reason anyone gets to be an out gay person, especially a gay woman or a queer woman of any kind is because of Ellen. And so there's always any people who are grateful to her. I'm one of them. I'm recognizing that like, she's maybe not like the kindest person to work with, but she's also had such a huge impact on the trajectory of what my career can be. Uh, so like, it's definitely a gray area. Like, I don't know that like we, that anyone would want to completely get rid of her, but I really hope that she has some kind of like personal reflection or she changes the way she behaves around people or something happens because she can both be a great person who has done wonderful things for a lot of people in the industry and also hurt a lot of people. Those things can be simultaneously true. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And especially since we're seeing that within the Me Too movement and a lot of mm -hmm. things. I mean, a lot of the people who have participated in all of that, they, it's, I mean, we can't discount the fact that they have done great things, even though they have done terrible, horrible things as well. Mm -hmm. um, Pete, did you want to finish this topic off? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with so much of what everybody's saying. Like when, you know, with, with what, uh, like Shana was saying that her career is basically based around like a heightened version of a persona. And also what you're saying, Veronica, that, uh, that she's maybe a character of, of, of who she actually is. And so for that reason, I, I say to myself at least that she, it, this would probably be the best time for her to walk away from this show because Clearly, what's you know the trajectory of how this goes because it, this seems to happen to everybody else when there's a scandal is that the scandal keeps going and going and going until they quit. And so right now, there's still there still seems to be a semblance of people that think this is mostly her producers that are the problem. And so if she leaves right now and says, you know what, I'm I'm going to take the blame for it because I was the head of the show and even though I didn't do anything bad. You know, I should have been on top of what my people were doing. She walks away from it. I don't think she's going to miss the money whatsoever. And and she salvages what's left of, the, uh, you know, of her career because, you know, you know, she doesn't do movies. She doesn't do television other than this. She does a shit ton of commercials. And if you're no longer the happy person that people like, the one who dances, the one that the one that people generally think is somebody they'd want to welcome into their home you're not going to be the person that they're going to welcome to their home in a commercial. And so this is probably her best shot of getting out because if she stays around any longer, she's going to end up getting replaced against her will. And, and it's going to just hurt her long-term, you know, because, because, and, and it may, and the worst part is she may not have done anything that was so bad, but, but, you know, when it gets to this point, this is what happens. They, you know, people love you until they want to love to knock you down. And that, and that's where she's at right now. And there's nothing you could do to stop that most of the time. And and out and out just means out as a host. She still has her production company. Yeah, she still has a lot of a lot of fingers and a lot of different pies. We've all driven down Barn Boulevard and seen the 30 foot tall poster of her out in that wall that's been out there for years. So I mean, she's got plenty uh, of other things to go on, uh, Pete. I mean, why oh, why not get back into stand up? I would love to see Ellen do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Listen, okay. before we go, I'm not going to let you say Kelly Cox could take over the show. How dare you? Wendy Williams could take over the show before oh, Kelly. Oh, God, no. Yes. Oh, yes. See? See? Yes. 
See that, that Chris? That annoying. She's oh, mad. How you doing? I, how you doing? I, I think I think they're 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 missing uh, Veronica. I think you'll agree with me on this one. The person they should get, Joey McIntyre. Um, no, because that would be just as you'd get just as many screaming women running into that audience. <laughs> true. True. I think we wouldn't have to do the giveaway at about the same yeah. age. <laughs> yeah. So you wouldn't have to do the giveaway to get it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. You don't have to wait like, 15 years to get, you know, be able to go see one of her tapings. So isn't that like how long you'd have to wait? Oh, it's, it's people, a very long wait. Like, it would take years for people to be able to get tickets to the Allen show. I had a friend who waited 15 years. Like, it's a ridiculous amount like that, but I'm sorry, Chris. I have to disagree with you on that. I've tried watching Wendy Williams. I can only get through 15 uh, seconds of her talking. Um, wait, so wait, you can get through Kelly Clarkson before Wendy Williams? Um, I mean, she wouldn't be my number one choice. Okay, that's, that's all I'm going to say. Bring Chris, back. No, I'm Chris. Because what I'm talking about is they're on the same. They're on the same network, and they're ne- back to back. So that's why I'm saying. If anybody was going to take over Ellen's time slot, the no. three o'clock time slot, it would be moving Kelly Clarkson to the three o'clock time slot, which would be a more popular time slot. That's all that I was saying was based on the network lineup. See, that's what I'm saying. That's why it's got to be Joey McIntyre, because you can call the show New Kid in the Slot. No. There you oh! go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to, it sounds I hate so to dirty, your, Joe. It sounds so dirty, though. Chris, Chris, I, Chris, I hate to burst your bubble, but uh, back when I was in the in, in the club business in my former life, I dealt with Wendy Williams a lot because she used to just be a local radio personality, yeah, right? And and what they did to change her to get to be on television is, I, I mean, it's 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 night and day because. I have to be honest with you, and, and I'm not saying this, this has nothing to do with race or anything else. When I was around her, I, I literally would put my wallet on the other side of my, of my pants because she was so ghetto. I mean, did she, I mean like, like, if you want to talk about somebody that I would think would be really bad with, with, a, with a staff, Wendy Williams would have been number one on my list because she scared the shit out of me when I used to deal with her because she didn't fuck around. But how did she's perfect. Really horrible. That's why she's perfect. We say one gangster for another gangster. That's all. <laughs> Straight up gangster. Allow me to uh, make an addendum to my previous trigger warning from this from the beginning of the show. <laughs> now Peter's opinions do not reflect the opinion. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm talking from experience. Anybody who's doing me wrong, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just See, saying. I was there. See, I know what I'm talking about. See, Ellen, we understand sorry. about toxic producers, Ellen. We understand. So <laughs> okay, so finally, on this date in 1988, MTV premiered Yo! MTV Raps, which is often cited as being one of the first times hip-hop music was brought to a mass audience. Today, hip-hop is the most dominant form of music on the charts and in record sales. We thought we might ask our panel today who they think are the most influential hip hop artists, past and present. Now, before I get to you guys, um, I actually have some facts about MTV, yo, MTV raps. Let's see how many of you know this. Um, Peter probably knows all the answers, but do you I guys know who, who hosted the first pilot episode of yo, MTV raps? Who was it, Pete? Run DMC. Run DMC. Oh. Now, which was now which musical act um, performed in the first and last episode? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> it wasn't Eric B and Rakim, was it? 
Now it's um what it's one of the groups we've seen the times that we've gone to the New Kids on the Block concerts. Oh Jesus! It was Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper, yes. Mm-hmm. And finally, did you guys know that because they had such a low budget, they used to shoot all five weekday shows in one day, yeah. and they would just change their clothes out. So that was just a little fun fact there. Okay, so let's talk about influential hip hop artists, past and present. Let's start with you, Joe. Listen, I want to say Yo MTV Raps was really my introduction into hip hop, um, uh, and, and you know I really enjoyed it. And of course, you know, I, let me talk about, uh, just before I go, who I think my, my influential pick is, you know, I loved um, uh, um, Heavy D, uh, uh, Fat Boys, uh, Run DMC, um, uh, all, all those, the, a lot of these old school guys, Big Daddy Kane, I really like. But I think somebody who I think is really influential, um, and I was just thinking, it's funny that we mentioned this, because I was actually thinking about this the other day, uh, LL Cool J. I think LL Cool J was a guy that really changed things. Like he was the one he like he did a, a a love song. You know he he took these new beats and like going back to Cali is still an amazing amazing song. Now you know you play it now and it's still in there. And I think he's a guy that really really kind of brought it up to a next level. Mm-hmm. I was going to say LL Cool J too, Joe. Mm-hmm. I would go with um, old school um, first. Uh, I, 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 they, Yo MTV Raps was not my exposure to hip hop, but it was the continuation of the story. So uh, I will go with uh, Sugar Hill Gang. I'll, I'll, I'll talk old school with you, Joe. Sugar Hill Gang. I'll talk, um, oh, Dougie Fresh okay. and the Fresh Crew. Um, six minutes. Um, that, love that. Uh, and, but my end all be all iconic are the ladies. S&P, salt and pepper with their Spinderella on the side. Those ladies were the ones who blew my mind. I mean, Lottie Dottie opened the door, but salt and pepper, they really gave it to me, those girls. Um, They opened it for Tigra and Bunny. They opened it for all kinds of hip hop, MC Light. They got like, they made it possible for those ladies to to, to, to oh, yeah. rap female rappers first and exist. If, exactly. if you don't have Queen Latifah, you probably don't have Lauren Hill. Because Queen Latifah took hip hop beats and put, put it together with dance music. She sang, you know, it was, there, she did all the things that eventually is what made Lauren Hill successful and then crazy. <laughs> That's, True, well, I mean, you're right, you're she's right. Crazy. But, but luckily queen didn't stop she just kept going she just kept no, going no, no. right on the radar honey right under your radar I, I salsa danced with her one time back again when i was in my club days very nice lady very nice lady. strangely enough strangely enough the same night i danced with her she got she got pulled over later in the night and they found guns in her car and she went to jail for a day or so but yeah, that's a whole other story. It's a, you could look at a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> for, yeah you for can look today, it up. It's out there. For our today icon, I would have to go, I would go a little um, Nicki Minaj if I want, if we were going to go staying with the ladies, I would go Nicki Minaj because I think she definitely brings it hard for the women in terms of raps. Her, her beats are really great and what she's saying in her rap is also very profound. Her and Little Kim. And I know that there's controversy with the two of them, but both of them rap like hardcore and they are very good and have a lot to say. So those are the two I'd go with today, ladies wise. Okay, well, maybe I'm going to date myself a little bit too much here, but as far as as far as actual hip hop 
like the rap part of it. There's there's no better artist than than Rakim from Eric B and Rakim. I mean, the the guy could 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 just do anything with a microphone. And I mean, if you move the crowd, Peyton Fall, um, Eric B for president, like those kind of songs, they they've never done anything close to that. But and if you really want to talk influence, and, and I think this is something that people probably wouldn't even realize, probably some of the most influential people within hip hop music are probably the guys that used to that used to produce Public Enemy when they first came out. They, they, they went by the name of the Bomb Squad uh, because they were probably the first ones. The, the main guy's a guy named Hank Shockley. He, they used to take, they were probably one of the first that took full samples of songs and actually turned them into the into the song. I mean, before they were people were sampling for years before, but they were actually making the songs out of the sample that, which was something nobody did before, because they were, you know, it wasn't that there was just a, like a little piece of the song. They would take a horn from here, and that would be the uh, that would be the run throughout the song. And they would take a beat from a James Brown song, and that would be that you know that would come in at other points. And so what they did essentially kind of made made hip hop what it became for for years after that. Uh, there, there hasn't been anything like that, you know. I mean, to me, obviously, I'm a New Yorker, so Biggie, you can't, you can't mess with Biggie. Um, and that's, and there's, that doesn't, you know, you could say Tupac, you could say Jay Z. There, there was only one Biggie, and may, maybe the fact that he died so young would probably made him even more, you know, more of like a, like an iconic artist because we don't know what he could, he could have gotten bad at some point, or maybe it would have been even better. But, you know, and as far as like today, I don't really know. I, I was trying to figure out who who was the first artist to really kind of get into the, uh, like what I like to call the mumble rap that, that, that you hear a lot of artists have now. Because it's like, it's, like there's there's two kinds of, of hip hop today. There's there's the style that, that I think that like people like Eminem started with, with the with the lyrical flavor where everybody's kind of like all over the place. And then there's the other style, which is more where you don't understand a fucking word anybody's saying. But you know they're saying something, um, and I mean I know like people like Rick Ross, and Jim Jones, people like that were, were some of the early people. But like I, I can't tell you where that started. If anybody else knows, feel free. It was the Migos. They're the ones that kind of like really. It was, it, it was really the Migos and I can, thanks Migos for fucking up with hip hop. <laughs> so, uh, oh, go ahead, Chris. I was gonna say um, you, a couple have already been mentioned. LL Cool J for sure changed the game. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say this because, like, he wasn't technically an artist, but he did uh, produce a lot of, like, great hits and a lot of great artists. Uh, Puff Daddy. Like, if yeah. it, like honestly, True. you know, what I mean? like, he has a lot of influence in the game still to this day, still to a lot of things, you know what I'm saying? Um, I also want to go, like... Not just vodka. Like, not just vodka, but, like, real music, you no, know? No, vodka. You know, there's no D in it when he says yeah. it. It's vodka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got him, and then um, of course you got NWA. They changed the game big time. Oh, yeah. like, they changed it from like yeah. hip hop to gangster rap, which was something that nobody had ever seen before, and were and a lot of people were terrified from it. Which is of course a well, big and change. being so angry and violent with it in a way because it had already yeah. it would have been political, but not with the same kind of right. That's what I mean. Like, that's what yeah. I'm saying. They changed it from like just hip hop to gangster rap which is again because right. well, a lot of people don't think of like hip-hop as being political but it was right. very political prior oh, to sure. but a lot but you know what i'm saying public like, enemy and, and whatnot yeah. Right. yeah absolutely uh and then uh so and i, and I kind of put when i say nwa i kind of put like 
Snoop in there too, because he was kind of around the same uh, uh, time. And, like, and that's the thing, we're still singing his songs to this day. But, uh, and then we got L Cool J. And then, uh, man, and, and as far as like today, I think I think you do got it. Here's the thing. Even though she's not technically modern day rapper, I still, Lauren Hill, man, like she made one album and we're still singing that shit. You know what I mean? Like people are still, she's still just crushing it. We still singing that shit. I, I guarantee anybody who is a hip hop head has that entire album on their playlist somewhere. And like, if it came on, you wouldn't touch it. You just let it play. You feel me? And uh, let the miseducation go. <laughs> you just let it. You just let it play. You feel me? Uh, and I don't. I mean, I, like, there's a lot of women out today, but I think uh, like Nikki for sure has got it. Um, uh, Cardi B is kind of coming up in there. I think. Yeah, but I got. She turned me off because she wants to trademark her. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. like, girl, you can't trademark no fucking. I mean, that's a roll of your tongue, girl. That's a roll of your tongue. My cat has had that trademark for years. But that's what I'm saying. Every drag queen I know from Christopher Street can do. They all do that. That's how they call people in the club. I'm like, girl, you cannot trademark a drag queen call. (laughs) (laughs) And the court agreed. The court agreed. They were like, girl, you can't call drag queen call. It did, though. Because, like, like, here's the thing. Now, here's the thing, but see, it's different for you because, you know what I'm saying, like, we grew up in that culture, you know what I'm saying, like, you grew up around that, but, like, for white women in the Midwest, they never heard of, okay, okay. Yeah. they never heard of their entire life until Cardi B came on, and they were like, oh, shit, mind blown, new thing, so. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, they I feel know, like I get my it. Cat. I get it. <laughs> and I'm all about the education of Karen. I want her to be, I want her to be well-rounded. I want her to be brilliant. Yeah. And a boo. Chris, Chris, Chris is so oh, right about that. I, I didn't even... Oh, God. No, one more. I just, uh, I know, like, he's kind of fallen off. We haven't heard much from him, but Kendrick Lamar. Because, like, I mean, like, Pulitzer Prize winner? Like, come on. Like, like, the man is winning, like, all these, like, crazy, like, outside of hip hop, he's winning all these crazy awards for, like, his lyrics and and things of that nature. So, like, that's kind of changing the game because, like, um, even, like, like, still to this day, like, you know, before things like that were happening, hip hop was kind of getting pushed to the side, you know, as far as like, you know, people gaining awards and stuff like that. Like people were recognizing it, but it was still kind of get pushed to the side. But like people like him are making it more of a appreciated genre, like across the board, you know what I mean? For people, so yeah. it's not just like only hip hop heads that are, you know, wa- you know, watching these awards, like everybody's getting, even like people who love country are like, well, I'm gonna watch this part of the award. Cause like, you know, I'm listening to this now, you feel me? So I think that's, I think he kind of helped push that, that, that uh, push the like, hip hop, closer to the front and have people respect it a little more outside of just like a small, like not a small different, but like a one niche demographic. So. Yeah, you know, one, one, yeah, one, no, one, one of the things that Chris was saying, I, I think as much, I think when it comes to, to Puffy or Diddy or Daddy or whatever we're calling him today, that I, I don't think that he gets credit for this a lot, but, but if it wasn't for him, I, I don't think people realize that prior to, prior to what he did when he was with Uptown Records, um, there was no kind of mixing between hip hop and R and B. There was R and B, and then there was hip hop, and then all of a sudden, here comes Mary J. Blige, who he was very influential with. You know, p- helped put together her first her first couple of albums. Mm-hmm. You know, and then after her, Faith Evans and some of, and some of these other artists that that kind of played that, that played in between those two areas where it was it was R and B, but it was also it had hip hop beats, and then occasionally it had hip-hop artists coming onto the tracks, mm. you know, that's all you hear now. I mean, I mean, people like Ariana Grande 
wouldn't probably have the kind of career they have if, if you didn't have Puffy doing that with Mary J back in like the early 90s. Right. 100. You know, so, you know, really, I mean, so terrible rapper and, and yeah. also a guy that I met and not an incredibly nice person. Yeah. And anybody who wants, who wants to know this, two days after Biggie died, when he was so sad and was thinking about writing songs about it and everything else, I, I, I watched him get thrown out of a club because him and his friends were, were swinging bottles at people because they thought it was funny. So just saying, uh, but, but not a nice person, but a very influential artist. Hey, Emma? Uh if you look at me, this is for mostly people who are listening to the podcast. I yeah, I don't know a ton about hip hop. No shit. No. Uh, but let's call a spade a spade. Uh, but I did want to. What I was thinking, especially in terms of what Chris was saying, in terms of like people who are able to get hip hop out to like a new audience, and like the education of Karen. Thank you, Shana. Um, I was thinking Lin Manuel Miranda, just in terms of like pure influential. There is nobody who can argue now that it's not an art form, that it's not its own genuine style of music, because he was able to take it into the oldest and whitest of mediums and do really, really well with it. Um, so like, you can make your arguments about how good he is at it, but uh, the fact that he was able to bring it into that space, uh, I think at least makes him influential. Emma's favorite, oh Emma's favorite hip hop album is Patrick Stewart reading Shakespeare. <laughs> I do listen to Patrick Stewart reading Shakespeare. I do want to. I do want to say You're one thing about this. Not on a um, and I know he's totally crazy, but his first two albums were really great. Kanye West. Mm -hmm. He was really, really, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Really, when, when when mom when was first three albums, albums, when, I mean, his first two were just like off. I mean, he, I, I'll give you the third, but I'll say for two, the the first two for sure, for sure, yeah. where it was like epic, changing to that scene, what he was saying, how he was saying it, it coming out. And if you haven't listened to any of that, you should because that is why people are willing to follow him even when he's crazy because. He, he did speak truth at one time. You know, and also influential in two different ways is Eminem. Eminem, like, like he, he can rap like no other, but influential in a bad way because all of these, like, white teenage boys in the Midwest were like, man, I can do that. And just watch this. And they're horrible. Okay. <laughs> they're just horrible. <laughs> Danny mentioned online Missy Elliott and Eminem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Missy's fucking great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're gonna do Kanye too, you gotta listen to the stuff he did when he was with Black Star, because a lot of people don't yeah. know that music. Like before he actually left Chicago, him and Talib Kweli and uh, Most Def, like Black Star was the beats that he produced for them. I mean, and Most Def. Oh my god. All the stuff he did for for, for Jay Z. Oh All the stuff yeah. he, he produced for him too. Yeah, crazy. He was great, and crazy. then he became crazy. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Well, I mean, I, I we've talked about that on the yeah. show, but yeah. I, he was a great. I mean. If you've never listened to that stuff, listen to it. It's Same dark. thing, you know, we talked about Dre. He was in the NWA, but I think he was much more influential as a producer. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, was, he was much more influential as a guy selling headphones because that's where he made all his well, money. Well, kind of ruined, you know, ruined a, a nice little family business in San Francisco, but hey. Listen, he's not wrong. As soon as Beats came out, it was in all the music videos. There was, you couldn't yes. see one music video he's out there. Yeah, he, he the well, they were in a ton of bags. Let's they call them what they are. Let's call them what they are. Stolen monster headphones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say that I do miss classic hip hop. You know, like Pete says, you know, we listen to some of the new hip hop right now and we just like, 
we're like, we don't under- understand a word they're saying. They're just like mumbling. But, you know, I'm just like, LL Cool J for me, Ice Cube. Love Ice Cube. When I was, uh, so when I was in Florida, I went to like, uh, it was like classic artists of hip hop, like concert at the Citrus Bowl, you know? And, and and one of the people was Big Daddy Kane. I went to see Big Daddy Kane. It was great. And he gets out there. And you know he he's 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 not a spry man anymore, but he can still do the dance. And he goes, "This is the rap that Candy starts dancing." And the whole audience tries to get up, and they're like, oh, oh, and they can't get up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was a really time. great show. Really great show. <laughs> they, changed, they changed the last name to K A. I mean to C A N E. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> he puts on the oxygen when he gets he's, he's Big Daddy. Like, yes, he's Big Daddy you. Walker now. <laughs> thank you. I put on the oxygen after. Thank you. <laughs> the good old times. I want to read um, a, a comment from Heidi. She says, "In her honest opinion, Dr. Dre is the sexiest hip hop artist ever." So Hello? there you go. Hey, <laughs> so with that, hey, I wish we had David here today. Let's talk about Dre. Let's talk about Dre. So with that comment, we're going to say goodbye today. So thank you so much for joining us. That's our show for today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow at 6 p.m. for another Trump Free Friday and our game show, Dodge, the game of useless knowledge. Have a good night, everyone, and stay safe. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Bye. See ya. See, I'm doing right up on you. Is he the